Father, I pray, oh God, for your grace now to, to help us see from your word wonderful things. God, to help us embrace them and love them. I particularly pray today, God, that we would see this gospel message isn't just for us in the church, God, but it is, God, far beyond. It's for those who don't know Jesus. God, we gather here so we can scatter and tell others about Christ. I, I pray that you would help me, God, just to open up these first five and a half verses of Romans 9. What a, what a great treasure they are, and would pray that you would mold our hearts into conformity into the image of Jesus Christ. God, that is our heart's desire. We pray in his name. Amen. All right, well, last Sunday, I told you that the best time for Christmas to fall is on a, not a Sunday, on a Monday, because that means that Christmas Eve, in which all the events transpire, um, of uh, Mary and Joseph coming and baby being born. We celebrate those on Christmas Eve, and so it's just perfect when it falls on Christmas Eve. But there's another reason why it's really good that Christmas falls on a Monday is because, why? What's today? Today is, is New Year's Eve, and that means that New Year's Eve lands on a Sunday as well as we, we think about just the, the next year of coming. And, and of all the sermons throughout all the year to preach, I think this is my favorite one, New Year's Eve. I mean, I like Christmas, and I like dwelling upon Jesus, and I like Easter and dwelling upon the resurrection, but there's something about New Year's Eve that, that really touches my heart because I think there's oftentimes a hunger for people, a hunger to change. Like the holidays have been through, and maybe there's been some disappointment or some hardship or um, whatever, and, and uh, then you're thinking about the new year and disappointment from the last year, whatever. You want to change. You're, you're anticipating a change in the new year. And I, and I think that, that hearts are, are, are ready and that hearts are kind of primed to say, okay, so what, what can I start tomorrow that will really set a course for the new year? Of course, the new year, we're always talking about resolutions. Um, my wife and I have joined the YMCA and uh, we're the, the Peary Family Center was built walking distance from our house. And so we're getting to be 50-ish now, and I need to get some of my um, belly down a little bit. We just need to start going. I'm not quite as strong as I used to be. And so we were at the Y the other day and uh, ran across this, member resolutions, right? Inspire others by changing your, sharing your resolutions and goals. So apparently someone fills out a card, you place it on their thing, just, just desire to change. Now, there's oftentimes danger with uh, resolutions because they're, they're, easily, they're easily forgotten, they're, e they're easily missed, um, you know, so that, that's always maybe a, a disappointment, but it is a signal that I think in all of our hearts, with the new year, there's, there's always this uh, heart's attitude to, to change, and, and I'm praying really for a, for a change in your life, and this morning I, I thought about entitling a message, um, Resolutions for the New Year, but instead I, I entitled it Convictions for the New Year. Like, like these are, are things, maybe it's not a, a change, but these are like deep things, deep-rooted things, conviction in your heart that will help you this next year as we, as we come. My text is Romans 9, and so I invite you to open there. It's page number 945, your pew Bible. Uh, this is a, a great text we begin here. I remember a year and a half ago when I began preaching Romans, um, there was a visitor uh, in our midst, and uh, it was like the very first day, and, and he told me, he said, oh, I can't wait for Romans 9. And, uh, well, it's been a, a year and a half. We start Romans 9, and he just kind of visited that, that one time. But that's like his favorite chapter, and uh, it's a favorite of many of ours as well, as it clearly puts forth the, 
the sovereignty of God, but it puts forth some other things as well that maybe today you've missed as it, as it couches there. But I want to read the first five and a half verses. Paul writes this, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They're Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises, and to them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Now these words open up a a new section of the book of Romans. It really calls us then back to, uh, to review. Um, after the introduction, Romans 1, 1 through 17, Paul then begins his letter with a, a discussion about sin. And uh, in the first two and a half chapters, uh, he speaks about how the wrath of God is revealed against mankind for their, their sin. And, and he, Paul addresses the whole world. He addresses Jews and Gentiles, beginning with the Gentiles, those who don't have the Scriptures. They've sinned against the revelation that God has given them. And they're without excuse under the wrath of God because they've rejected God's natural revelation, Romans 1, verse 20. And then after Romans 1, he begins then to address the Jew. And the Jews who have the Scriptures, they've sinned in view of the Scriptures. They know clearly what's right and wrong, and they themselves have sinned. They failed to live up to their knowledge. And so Jews and Gentile both under sin. And, and Paul presents the breadth of sin. And he also presents the depth of sin in Romans 3, 10 through 12. He says this, as it is written. Just pulling from Old Testament texts. He says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And he paints the picture as dark as can be that we're all condemned under sin, every single one of us, because we have sinned against a holy God. And our position really is hopeless apart from God's intervention. But the good news is that He has intervened and provided us with salvation. It's really the second word. Sin, chapter 1 through 3, and salvation, chapters 3 through 5. And that is the good news, that God has provided the way for us to be righteous. We are sinners, and He gives us the way of righteousness. It's not by doing better. Because we've tried and that doesn't work. But he's given us the way of, of righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. It's Romans chapter 3 verse 22 says. And it's all because of God's grace. Romans 3 verse 24 says that we are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. See, none of us deserve salvation. But God gives it. God in his grace gives us And He gives it to us to show that it's not of us. He gives it to us through faith. It's not some exchange that we need to do. We don't need to buy it. We just simply need to call out to God and we get it. And our faith to the Lord is counted as righteousness, as Romans 4 verse 7 says. And as we're justified by faith, we have peace then with God. And the third section then of of Romans, after we've talked about our sin, our salvation, comes our, our sanctification. That is the, the implications of our salvation. That is, that is how we live. Right? When, when we're saved, then we pursue a life of sanctification. It's the process of being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. I say process because it, 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 is, a, it is a work. It's not an inten, instantaneous deal at all. It's, so when we're saved, we're justified, perfectly righteous. But, 
but our life needs to catch, catch up to where we stand in Christ, and sadly, we, we don't live what we are. And this process of sanctification is a process of, of living more and more of who we are. Paul begins a section, Romans 6, verse 2, with a key quote. How can we who died to sin still live in it? See, we've been united with Jesus. We've died to sin. How can we live in it? And sadly, we, we do, right? And the key, though, to, to get rid of that, to, to turn off our sin, is a mindset. Romans 6, verse 11 Consider yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. But our flesh easily pulls us down. And Paul said in Romans seven fourteen, I know the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold under sin. Right? The, the law is righteous. It's holy. And what we want to do, we want, we want to please God in all these ways. But the flesh is of sin. And, and there's this battle within. Even Paul confesses the struggle. He says, I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. And this process of carrying it out is the process of sanctification. And the struggle to carry it out and this anguish is actually an evidence of true salvation. See, those who don't know Christ have no reason to struggle. Why would they struggle? They're not trying to be like Jesus. They don't, they don't need any struggle. But those who know Christ desperately want to walk in His ways and fight the flesh and it's hard and it's a battle. But lest you fall into despair because your battle isn't won, because your, your progress is too slow, then comes the confidence of Romans chapter 8 where we've entitled it security. The strong statement of security comes in Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, regardless of how far or how lack you are and your struggle with sanctification goes, if you're genuinely in Christ, you need not worry any condemnation because you are secure for all eternity. And that's the promise of verse 1, that, that our sins are forgiven, right? There, there's no hidden document. There's no, no dark corners are going to be revealed. There's no surprise at the end. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And there's a promise of security because the fundamental deal is Romans 8.31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Nobody, nothing can be against us. And the definitive statement comes right at the end. Look at chapter 8. It's a write up. But from our, our text, the last two verses of Romans chapter 8, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. We as believers are secure in Jesus. Well, this morning we come to the fifth major section of the book, and we're working through, and we just have one more service begins in chapter 12, but... Sovereignty is what we've called from uh, Romans 1 through 9. And we call it sovereignty because the, the argument here is that God is the potter and we are the clay. There's Romans 9 verse 18 says that God has mercy on whomever He wills and He hardens whomever He wills. The very last verse of this section, Romans 8 verse 36 says, From Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. That is sovereignty. That's what, that's what this section is about. And the reason why we've called it sovereignty is because it starts with an S. Right? We've got to get something there. But, but really, that's only part of the story. Sovereignty is only part of the story because that's, that's really the answer to the problem in Romans 9 through 11. See, there's, there's this big question raised in, in, in 9 through 11. It really comes out of Romans chapter 8. And, and the big question is this, is why 
is Israel in unbelief? Why doesn't Israel believe? And that's, that's what all these, that's what Romans 9 is about. With all its privileges, with all its position as God's chosen people, why is Israel unbelieving? As Brian read for us from Psalm 135, the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. If that's who Israel is, then why is Israel unbelieving? I mean, especially, right? Look, look at Romans chapter 8. Romans 8.28, right? God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. And, and, and knowing that God has got His fingers and His hand in all of, all of life's activities, the secure thing comes in, in verse 29 and 30, right? Those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that we might be the firstborn of many among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. And now here's the problem. What about Israel? They're called in Psalm 135, verse 4. God's chosen. They're called a possession. You can look through all the Old Testament. It's oftentimes talked about how Israel is God's chosen people. They're His chosen people. They're the ones. Well, if God's chosen people are secure from all eternity, why are they not believing today? Well, it, why are they unbelief today? It is not the promise that those whom He foreknew, He predestined, and those He predestined, He called and justified glory. Well, did He not foreknow Israel? Then, then why are they not called and justified today? Why are they not believing? Uh, I hope you see the problem. I mean, it's all fine and dandy that we, we, we rest in these great promises of Romans 8. Right, that, that what God knew before the foundation of the world is going to come through to eternal glory. But all you need to do is look at an object lesson. You say, well, what about, what about Israel? What happened to them? And, and if that happened to them that they're unbelieving, then, then what about us? Is this secure thing really true? If Israel is lost in unbelief, can we be lost in unbelief? And so Paul takes three chapters to talk about this theological problem, about the unbelief of Israel. And he does so by answering it to say that God is sovereign. So sovereignty is really the answer to the problem. Like, for instance, look at chapter 11 and verse 25. Chapter 11, verse 25, kind of just kind of jumping in. He says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Right? And where's the hardening come from? That comes from the Lord. Until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. See, God has hardened Israel, opened salvation to the Gentiles, but there's going to be a time when He's going to come back and all Israel, verse 26, will be saved. As is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. See, it's all working according to God's sovereign plan. And it begins this section, though, by talking about Paul's heart for Israel. Okay, so oftentimes when you look at chapter 9, you just jump in at verse 6, and you, you begin to think about sovereignty and power. But, but what's very interesting here is Paul's heart and his attitude surrounding this whole position of, of sovereignty. Um, and, and I trust you'll see what I mean. So Paul begins by talking about his heart for Israel. 
So it's very devotional, very, very passionate. This isn't a cold thing for Paul. When he, when he says Israel isn't believing, he's not just saying, well, okay, they're not believing and kind of going on stoically. No, he is, he is personally involved in this thing. Look at verse 1. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So by way of application this morning, I want to look at Paul's attitude. It's very instructive for us that, that Romans is about evangelism. It's about being eager to preach the gospel. And people often think the truths of Romans chapter 9 say, well, well, that stops evangelism, right? If, God, if all salvation is all in the hands of God, then there's no need to evangelize. And Paul says, au contraire. Look at, look at his heart for the lost people here. This is not something cold. And my challenge to you as we look at the heart for the lost is that you might have the same heart as we think about the new year, that you might have a heart for lost people as well. I know I've been challenged here by verses 1 through 5, and I just hope and pray that we all would have a, a similar heart to, to Paul. He, he begins by affirming the utter truthfulness about what he's about to say. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Verse 1 is, if you will, an oath of truthfulness. You know, it's a bit similar to what takes place in our courts when, when a witness is about to take the stand. They're instructed to raise their right hand, sometimes place their left hand on the Bible. And what do they say? I promise to swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And then, so help me God. And that's almost exactly what Paul says. He says, I am speaking the truth, verse 1. I am not lying. And then he says, so help me God. Calling upon Jesus Christ, I'm telling the truth in Christ, calling upon the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, to, to witness on His behalf that indeed He is telling the truth. Now, what's so funny here, funny, maybe that's not a good word, but so curious here is that I don't think Paul had to say this. I mean, I mean Paul, I think, was an utterly truthful man. He was a man of his word. He wasn't in the habit of lying, especially in his written word. He wasn't one to, to mince words, especially in his inspired words. <laughs> he didn't have to say, hey, listen, I'm really telling you the truth. But I think Paul puts it here for emphasis to say, this is really deep down what I, I feel in my heart. And he says this, he says, I'm in grief. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. He's got sorrow and anguish, and his sorrow is great, and his anguish is unceasing. <clears throat> it's, like, it's like this grief and this sorrow and this pain is coming out of him. It almost sounds like, like there's some tragedy that's taken place, or there's some death of some loved one that has shaken him to the core. And that's exactly what's taking place. There is a tragedy. There is death of loved ones that have shaken him to his core. He's talking about the death of his family. He's grieving for the death of his people, Israel, <coughs> because they don't believe in the Messiah. They had all the privileges. And, and in fact, he lists them there in verses 4 and 5, right? Just let, let's begin in verse 4. Let's just start, start working through this list. He says that they are Israelites. These are the privileges of, of Israel. It says that they're Israelites. For thousands of years, God has focused his heart and attention upon Israel. 
beginning with Abraham, 2000 B.C., is focused on Abraham and upon his descendants. They were the apple of God's eye. You touch Israel and you touch God. He said, those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. Genesis 12, verse 3. Meaning that, that I am just close to you. If they, they touch you, they're going to touch me and they will, they will know my wrath and my anger. But he continues to say in verse 4 that to them, to Israel, belongs the adoption. Israel is God's adopted child. Several times in the Old Testament, he calls them sons. Exodus 4, verse 22. Hosea 11, verse 1. Out of Israel I've called my son. In the whole Exodus account, it was as if God was delivering his son from difficulty. He also said, verse 4, that Israel had the glory. I mean, of all the nations on the earth, it was the glory was Israel's. The glory of God rested on their tabernacle. As a nation, they, they shone forth the glory. People saw Israel and say, well, what nation has a God so like theirs that is so near when anyone ever calls upon Him? They also had the covenants. God covenanted with His people repeatedly over and over, starting with Abraham. That He would be the father of many nations, particularly though He would be the father of Israel. He made a covenant with Moses. Exodus 19.5, that Israel would be a treasured possession among all the peoples. All the peoples of the earth, there's one treasured possession. It is Israel. It's as if you, you look at your house, what's the most treasured possession that you have? Your heirloom vase, perhaps, or some picture, or some photo album. He says, that is Israel. That's like when I'm going to run out of my house, that's the one I'm going to save. That's what God says. He made a covenant with David. That the kingdom of Israel would never end. That David would have a, a man to sit on his throne forever. He promised the new covenant to Jeremiah that, that he would be their God and that they would be his people. Paul says that, that Israel had the giving of the law. This Exodus account just given to them. And, and though the law couldn't save, Paul calls it good here in Romans 7 verse 16. Isaiah called the law glorious. Because that indeed is what it was. It gave Israel a direction and a vision for their lives of how they ought to live and how they ought to respond in every way to their sin and to the Lord. They had the worship of any other nation in the world. It was Israel who had worship right. Because they worshiped the one true God. They worshiped Him through the tabernacle and through the temple. All other nations had idolatry is all they had. And they also had the promises. The promises to Israel. I mean, these are too numerous to count. We're talking about the promises of a Messiah to come. They promised him a land, a, a throne for Israel, and a kingdom for Israel. And all these things culminate in verse 5. To them, to Israel, belong the patriarchs. That is Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They're the ones who have these, these three men, these men, the, all the, the, the leaders of the tribes. Right? They've got the history. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. That is, right, he... Jesus came from the line of David. He was a Jew. The Messiah came from the Jewish people. This is Christ who is God overall, blessed forever. Amen. The privileges of Israel are vast and abundant. And yet, despite all these blessings, Israel failed to believe. They failed to trust the Lord. They rejected their Messiah. And in light of all these privileges, that's what makes Israel's 
defection and unbelief so tragic? When you read through the Old Testament, it's, it's not a tale of a perfect people following God. It's a tale of this disobedient people who didn't want anything to do with God, that then they'd call on God and He'd come back and rescue them like judges. They're doing well, and then they, they fade, and then they get in trouble, and they cry out to God. God brings them a judge. He delivers them. He delivers them, and He comes back, and He's doing well. And then they forget the Lord. Coming back, forget the Lord. That's what Israel was. Forgetting the Lord often. And that's what God is doing, is just being faithful to an unfaithful people. And Paul shows how great his sorrow and anguish for Israel is in verse 3 when he says, I wish that I myself were accursed, cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He says a curse. That means he, he wishes that he was condemned to hell. He wishes that he had no part of Christ. And he says, I wish that I would go to hell for the sake of my family. That my kinsmen, my Israelites would be saved. I would gladly give my eternal soul for them. Now, of course, that's impossible. Romans 8 says that, neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. And, and yet he's saying, no, I, would, I want to be separated from the love of God. That's why he said I could only wish. He knew that that was impossible. But in speaking hyperbole this way, he knew full well the effect it was. He, he was, it was making this effect that he has a great heart for Israel, for his kinsmen. His heart is so big and so strong, willing to give his life in exchange for Israel. Unless you think this is the only spot, look over at chapter 10, verse 1. He says, brothers... My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. His, his desire for Israel is that they would come to know Jesus and be saved. His, his prayer to God was for the salvation of Israel. And, and lest you think that the, the truths of Romans chapter 9, they speak about the sovereignty of God, would in any way inhibit evangelism or would inhibit praying for the salvation of the lost, saying, oh, well, God's already determined anyway, it's going to happen. You so miss the spirit of the Apostle Paul, who so longs for these people and prays for them. So, so don't, just, don't just take the truths of Romans 9, the sovereignty of God, and then logically come to some conclusion that prayer and passion doesn't matter. It matters. In fact, all of Romans is about preaching the gospel. In fact, even what our, our, our theme is, right? He's eager to preach the gospel. This is what Romans is about. Romans 1, verse 14. He says, I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek He's passionate about wanting to preach the gospel, wants to preach it to believers, wants to preach it to unbelievers. So Romans 15, in verse 20, he says, Thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, as is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. 
Paul says, I so desire to go out to those who've never heard about Jesus and preach the gospel to them so that they might hear of Christ. In verse 24, the, the whole reason for the letter, I've said before, this is a missionary letter. This is a, a letter of looking for support because he's in, in Jerusalem going to, to Rome. He wants to pass through Rome on his way to Spain, Romans 15, 24. <coughs> I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. Helped on my journey means you help me financially and whatever skills-wise so I might go on my journey to be able to preach the gospel to Spain. Paul had this desire for his kinsmen to be saved and, and don't ever take the truths of Romans 9 and, and try to come up to some logical conclusion that it, it devoids us of evangelism or responsibility or prayer to God for salvation of people because it's just, it's just plain. Out. That's the power of exposition, right? We're not just going to jump into verse 6. We're going to feel the flow of the whole letter. And so this morning, really my my point of application is this, right? I want to go this way, right? Do you have a heart for the lost? Do you have a heart for the lost? When you see people lost in their sins, what's your heart attitude towards them? How do you respond? Are you repulsed by their sin? Are you glad just to let them go on their way to destruction? Are you easily satisfied? Well, well, it's in God's hand and they'll be justly condemned. Or do you have a heart for them? Realizing that they are on the precipice of eternal destruction. Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so he went about ministering to these harassed and helpless people, showing them the way of God. And even Israel particularly, these religious people who knew so much, Matthew 23, like one of the last words he said, he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you are not willing. Here was, here was Jerusalem who killed the righteous people that were sent to him, to her, and yet even murderers, Jesus is lamenting because they rejected him. How about this? Are there people in your life you're praying for actively that God would save them? How about this? Can you name seven people in your life who you're actively praying for to be saved? Heard someone call this a seven for heaven list. Maybe it's a good thing for you this new year. I know for me, I'm kind of taking this conviction to heart to have a, have a heart for the lost, right? To, to commit myself to pray every day for seven people, seven for heaven list. And so th- this week, what I did is I, I took a, a sticky note, placed on the front of my Bible, and just going to see if this year I just got... Actually, I got eight names. I can erase one to make it seven, make it easier to pray. There's eight names, and these guys are, are guys I'm reaching out to. Guys who I know through circumstances, and, and these are unsaved people. It's hard for a pastor to know unsaved people. That's why we join the Y, to be around unsaved people. Okay? That's why I like to play pool, to be around unsaved people. So our neighborhood is surrounded by unsaved, hurting people. 
Now, in my notes, right, one of the things that I, I did is I, I put down here at the bottom of my notes. I'm not sure if you have that or using that. That's okay. But I got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Maybe it'd be good for you right now. Can you write down seven names of people in your life who need to be saved? I'm just going to give it takes maybe 20 seconds to do that. And I'm thinking about this sticky note even. Is that a sticky note is really easy. It's not like permanently etched in my Bible that if I, whatever, someone leaves or moves away or I haven't seen them for some time. I just want to have seven people who I'm actively seeing on a, on a weekly, bi-weekly, maybe monthly basis or just kind of regularly in my life. Maybe there are family members that are there you can, you can pray for. Maybe there are neighbors. Can you write seven names? We're just going to pause. I'm going to give you time. Application. Seven names. You can put them in your phone. Seven for heaven. And this list doesn't need to be in stone today. But it, it could be something that after service, I even, even put here, here's a fellowship conversation starter question. Hey, do you have a seven for heaven list? Maybe seven people. What are, what are seven people you're reaching out for, reaching out to? And I just, seven rhymes with heaven, so that's kind of a fun, that's easy, you know. Um, but my hope is that through your prayers and through my prayers, that God will save some of these people on the list, even those written down today, this year. And my hope is that through my prayers and through your prayers that, that God would enlarge your heart and my heart for the lost. Because quite frankly, my, my heart is not like the Apostle Paul. I can't even begin to pray, verse 3. I wish that I myself were a curse cut off for the sake of my brother and my kinsmen according to the flesh. I mean, it, I can't say. God, I want to be eternally condemned for these people. It just so, it demonstrates my lack of love. Not quite like the Apostle Paul, but that's, that's where I want to be. I want to have such a passion and a heart for other people that would change my heart. I, I've begun to make some effort at these things. You know, a couple months ago, I, I read of a, a man who had an appointment in his calendar for, for 10.02 every morning, based upon Luke chapter 2, verse 10, which says, The harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly that the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I remember just reading that and thinking, you know, that's something really easy to do. And so I've got an appointment in my, my phone. Every 10.02 comes up and it goes, bring, comes up. And uh, kind of whatever I'm doing, I don't do this all the time, but there, there are times I'm, so I see that. I just stop what I'm doing and I, for a minute, just pray that God would raise up laborers into a harvest. Just one minute from, from 10.02 to 10.03 every day. And in fact, it, it happens, right? Every time we come here into worship, right, we're, we're just starting and uh, we're into our first song and all of a sudden my phone goes, 10.02. And I just pray for our service that God would raise up laborers for the harvest. Praying for all of us that, that he would raise us up. Here, and here, here's how it looks like. Okay, looks, looks something like this. It hits 10.02. I then step away, step aside, whatever, and I, I say, God, it's 10.02. And in Luke 2, 10 verse 2, you say, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray earnestly that the Lord will raise up laborers for the harvest. 
Oh God, I'm praying that you would raise up from Rock Valley Bible Church laborers in the harvest. I know my own evangelistic ministry is, is limited by who I know, and I can make some efforts, God, but I, I know that in a church of a hundred, if a hundred of us have seven people that we're, we're reaching out to and praying for, God, that's 700 people who don't know Jesus, who need Jesus. And so I pray, God, you would raise up, harvester, raise up laborers among us that we would go out and that we would have opportunities to speak the gospel, that we would see those opportunities, we'd be bold to walk through them, God, that you would delight to bring in a harvest at Rock Valley Bible Church. It's about a minute. It's about what I pray almost every day. Try that. That's what Jesus said, and I know that that's a, a prayer according to his will, because Jesus commanded, pray this way. You say, how can I pray? Well, here's a way that you can pray, and 10.02 every morning is, is something easy and I know here's, here's something also, is that as you do that, there's a heart that you gain for the lost people. Well, we've come now to the second point. It's only half a verse, and uh, my point's going to be very short. But I did want to come here because it's a good application for us. Not only should we have a heart for the lost, but we should have a trust in His Word. And I just want to talk this verse to, to set you up for Romans chapter 9 and to show how this is the problem. This is the question of Romans 9. Paul says this, But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. That's the beginning of Paul's answer to the question of unbelief. If indeed Israel had all these privileges of verse 4, the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises to them of the patriarchs, and from them came the Christ. If they had all of these things, then, then what went wrong? Why are they in, in unbelief? And one of the first places that people might point is the Scriptures. Well, just these promises of God were empty promises. And eventually also they're going to look to say, oh, God isn't powerful enough to bring this about. He can say, but He can't do. But Romans 9 is, is all about the truth of the Scripture and the sovereignty of God. In fact, in Romans 9 through 11, he quotes more Scripture in these passages, in these chapters, than he does in the other chapters of Romans because he so wants to ground his answer in the Word of God. And here he says in verse 6, clearly, it's not as though the Word of God has failed. Because God's Word never fails. Jesus says this, the Scripture cannot be broken. Not one jot or tittle shall be taken away, removed from the law, until all is accomplished. What the Scriptures say, the Scriptures mean, and they are true. And in Romans 9, as Paul <clears throat> <clears throat> Excuse me. As Paul delves deep into the scriptures to show why it is that Israel's in a state of unbelief because of the sovereignty of God, I'm just going to ask you, are you going to trust in his word? Are you are you going to trust him and what the word says? You know, some of the things in Romans 9 are, are controversial. Okay? Um, they're just people don't like them. And uh, they're controversial, not because it's unclear, but because it is clear and because people don't like what is said and they reject what is said. And I would just encourage all of you to say, Romans 9, just what, what God says, I believe. I'm just going to trust in His Word. I want you to read it. I want you to believe it. You know, you may not understand it all. There might be aspects about like, well, how does that work? Like, for instance, how does that work with prayer? Well, 
It does because Paul is praying and yet God is sovereign. He hardens whom he hardens and he has mercy on whom he has mercy, yet Paul is still praying. How does that work? I'm not quite sure how it works, but I have to understand, but I'm called to believe and trust his word, which is clear, is that, that God is all power and omniscient and we are responsible. See, you don't have to understand everything about the Bible to see how exactly it fits together. But I would encourage you as we go through Romans 9 just to, to trust what it says. And, and I just say this, is when you trust what it says, there's a joy and a delight in the sovereignty of God that surpasses all joys and delights <clears throat> when you know that God has got all things under control. It gives you a boldness in evangelism because you know it doesn't depend upon you. It depends upon God. And you can be bold as a lion because you know that God's got your back. And the only reason we pray is because we want to pray to a God who's powerful to change and conform a heart. If it was up to us and we were able to conform and change a heart, we wouldn't need to pray, but we're praying to God that He would intercede in the hearts of people, change their hearts, move their hearts like channels of water in His hand so they come and believe in Jesus. So prayer implies a belief in the sovereignty of God. And evangelism is only nourished and flourished by belief and trust in the sovereignty of God, but it's got to come with this passion of having his heart for the lost. But I just say trust his word. Trust his word. Because it is good. Also, the beginning of the new year, I just wanted to bring that apart just to, to address this issue about reading through the Bible. I mean, how many people come the new year and they, they say, yeah, I'm going to read through the Bible this year. And I do that every year. I'm going to read through the Bible this year. Sometimes I make it, sometimes I don't. But I'd say one of the ways you can demonstrate a trust in his word is to just read through the scriptures. If the Bible's too large, just read the New Testament. Just read portions. Just, just start and trust in his word. You know, there's plenty of plans to read. If you're looking for a plan, we'll get you a plan. I'll get you a plan today. I can send out links. You know, there's, there's, there's plenty of things. There's, there's plenty of ways. Uh, one of the things that we have done, the uh, last couple years, Yvonne, we have this, uh, this blog, Daily Audio Bible. Um, by this guy, Kevin Harden, Brian Harden. And um, he's wonderful, highly devotional. Well, he's just been reading through Revelation recently, and uh, it's so easy. It's a podcast. You put it on. You just listen to it. Um, generally, in the shower, we oftentimes listen to it. I listen to it on car trips, whatever. You just listen to it, put it in, and uh, he just has a devotional heart. Now, I don't, we don't agree with this, this guy and, and everything, but he's got a heart and a passion for God. I just love what he does. His, his exposition after reading through Revelation, just finishing, is wonderful. Not taking any side, just kind of saying, hey, this is what the Bible... You, so you can audio Bible, daily audio Bible is what it's called, right? So you can listen to it audio-wise. There's plenty of reading plans out there. Bible, it's easy to get a hold of and to do and to read. It just takes a little time. But I would say this, is that your commitment to read and your commitment just to trust it is a manifestation of a trust in the Lord. And never underestimate the power of what, what you'll do in the lives of people. Um, and so, you know, th- there's, there's different things. I, I, I talked to Darren about this. I said, you, one of the things you might do is maybe find some accountability. Maybe find someone in your life who say, you know what, let's read the Bible together this year. I, I, I've thought about this. I don't, I'll just throw this idea out, see if it works. You're not under any mandate at all, okay? This is, this is Steve speaking. But I thought about, what if you get a partner with somebody... He said, we're going to read through the Bible together, and you both read independently, and then when you get together, just find someone that's easy to do that with, or maybe over the phone or something, when you get together, you find out, okay, how far have you read? 
Well, let's see. This week I read, I'm in, I'm in Genesis 30. Oh, well, I only made it to 25. Okay, well, let's start in 25. And you read together for 15 minutes, just out loud, just the scripture. And then, and then you, you backtrack and you start off again. Okay, there's where we're going to go. We both start even again every week. And then you come back, well, where are you? Well, I'm in Exodus 12 because I found it so exciting. Well, I'm still in Genesis 40. All right, well, let's go back to Genesis 40 and then read through that again. And that might be just an example of some kind of encouragement that you might have just to read the scriptures together with somebody. If it's convenient to, to work out meetings like that, that would be a, a wonderful example. But just would encourage you to manifest a trust in his word by believing Romans 9 and by also just simply reading through the scriptures demonstrates a trust in his word. So here's my convictions for the new year. I think they're, you know, this is, this is your read your Bible, pray every day sermon, all right? Read your Bible, pray every day, and you will what? Grow, grow, grow. Neglect your Bible, forget to pray, and you'll shrink, shrink, shrink. All right, so read your Bible, point two, and pray every day, point one. And that would be a, a great start for the new year. But these ought to be deep convictions that we hold just all the time. So let me pray. Father, I pray that 2018 would be a year where we do, like the Apostle Paul, cultivate in our heart a desire, a prayer for the lost. God, those who don't need you, who need you. And I just think as I look out here and God, no people whose family members in jail, whose family members are far from you, living in high rebellion. And I see the heart of people for them. Lord, I pray you'd only increase that heart. The kids would know of their parents' love for them. The brothers and sisters would know of their love for them. And friends that would be faithful over the long term. God, however those are met. I, I pray, God, you would give wisdom and insight and direction as to how to, how to make these friends. God, for us, the gym is just one step in that. Pray other activities or clubs, God, to do in the, the spare time what is fun and enjoyable for the purpose of being able to reach out to other people. Father, help us have a heart for those who don't know Jesus. And I pray, God, that you would work, that you would stir in the hearts of people that way. And also, God, I pray in 2018 that we would be Bible readers, Bible consumers, just to to read your word and to know it well, to know it like the back of our hand. God, I just, I, I know that that is our constant need. It's an easy to neglect. God, and we need your grace to help us look to it because it has, has riches, as David said in Psalm 19, more to be desired than gold are your words, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. May we find your words sweet and may we be steady in, in reading through it. God, help us also, I pray, as we dig into the meat of Romans 9 and look at the sovereignty of God. I pray, God, that you would give us soft hearts to embrace the things here. God, fully. God, as they, they are just are, are true and manifest, and as Paul brings them out, Lord, we pray that you'd help, um, help teach us these things that we would embrace them and trust in them. And I pray for the experience of, of those in the room, perhaps resisting these things now, God, that through your work of sanctification, you would come and show how these words teach us a humility 
God, beyond all humility to realize that our lives are truly only saved by your grace, totally by your grace, God. And so I pray that that would transform us, that would uh, help us to walk more steady, more faithful lives as we love you and trust you. So be with us, O God, this new year. May 2018 be a great year as we live for your glory. pray in Jesus' name, amen.